Last week, we saw that this teaching flows out of three central teachings that are clear and consistent in the Bible. The Bible teaches that God is one. The Bible also teaches that God exists in three persons. And it lastly teaches that the three persons are each fully God. Now, last week, we mostly focused on that first truth, that God is one. And this week, we'll deal mostly with the latter two, and it's there that things can get a bit more complicated. Um, I mentioned when we study the Trinity, this study of the Trinity, I've likened it to eating ice cream. We're not going to spend all of our time looking at the ingredients. We want to end up like this, okay? Cherishing it, delighting in it. Uh, But to begin with today, I want to warn you, we do need to spend some time on the ingredients, making sure we know what it is that we believe, making sure someone hasn't slipped in some tofuta cream or something weird uh, in its place. So we will do a little bit of that. But if you'll bow with me in prayer, we'll ready our hearts to receive the word this morning. Father, by your spirit, come and teach us now. Take the word, make it clear. Make it life-shaping for us. So give us ears to hear and a mind to believe and a heart that's quick and eager to obey. Exalt your son now, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, as we try to sort out what it means when we say with the ancient creeds that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, it can be helpful to think about um, what we don't mean okay, when we say those things. When we say we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, uh, what doesn't it mean? And towards that end, I have enlisted the help of two 5th century Irish peasants named Donal and Connell. Creations of the Father and the 
All right, what don't we mean when we say um, that we worship God who is a trinity? Clearly, we don't mean that we worship three gods. Okay? We saw that last week. We looked at passages of Scripture like Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Clearly, we worship one God, not three. Now, there are uh, faiths today that come close to this kind of worship of three gods. Mormonism is one of those. Their founder, Joseph Smith, says, I have always declared God to be a distinct personage, Jesus Christ, a separate and distinct personage from God the Father, and that the Holy Ghost was a distinct, distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. Okay? We differ from Mormonism. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God, consistent with the teaching of Moses and Jesus. And really, the whole tenor of Scripture, we worship a God who is one. We believe in one God in three persons, not three gods. Now, as the video put it, we also don't believe in modalism, Patrick, okay? Modalism is the belief that one God has revealed himself in three different modes or forms, often in succession. Michael Reeves likes to call this modalism, as though God had three moods. He says one popular modalist idea is that God used to feel fatherly in the Old Testament. He had dry, tried adopting a more sunny with an O disposition in the Gospels. And then later on, he since has decided to become more spiritual with a capital S. So modalists or modalists might say that God revealed himself as father in the Old Testament, as son in the Gospels, and since has revealed himself as spirit. But we believe that the father and the Son, and the Spirit are all and always have been and will be eternally God. Okay. That's why we're able to see all three persons of the Trinity acting at the same time at junctures in the Scripture. For instance, when Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3, Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, 
with whom I am well pleased. So we have the Son being baptized, the Spirit coming down on Him, and the Father speaking this delight in the Son from heaven all at the same time, contrary to modalism, modalist beliefs. Now, modern-day proponents of modalism would be uh, groups like the United Pentecostal Church, um, among whom are pastors turned Christian musicians Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Their denomination are modalists. Uh, this used to be the doctrine of a, of a very famous pastor in the Dallas area named T.D. Jakes, but he has since repented of this and has become Trinitarian in his beliefs, which I'm, I'm very happy, happy to report. Um, so we believe that God has always and always will be one God in three persons. We are not, as the video indicated also, we're not Arians, named after an ancient controversy that may have been propagated by someone named Arius. Um, they would assert that the Son and Spirit are somehow less than subordinate to the Father in their value and their essence, often because they are merely creations of the Father and are less than God as a result, so that the Son is often portrayed as a creation of the Father, not an eternally coexistent uh, part of, of, the, of the deity as well. Now again, um, Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons who believe that Christ did not all exist but was created are examples of those who hold to a belief similar to Arianism today. But it's interesting Jesus claims to have been around before his creation. Uh, John 8, he's in a debate with the Jews, and he has made a claim that he has seen Abraham. And the Jews say to him, wait, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they got this. They understood he was saying that he was before Abraham. And with that statement, I am, that's a reference to the divine I am, Yahweh. And so they're ready to pick up stones and throw at him because of his blasphemy. Here's another instance. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus shared the glory of the Father before the world existed. He always was before creation. He is one with the Creator before creation, not a part of creation. So we are not Arians. We are not, as the video indicated, partialists, okay? where the Father, Son, and Spirit each make up a third of the Godhead. And are not fully God in and of themselves. Evidently, today, uh, Voltron would be an example of someone who is um, a partialist. But in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at each of the members of the Godhead and see that the Bible consistently and clearly presents each Father, Son, and Spirit as divine and nothing less than that. Not partially divine, but holy. And often... Um, those, who, those who question this, that all three persons are divine, will focus on Jesus and question whether or not he was truly God. And yet, just for our purposes today, consider this interaction with Thomas uh, of doubting fame 
when he encounters the risen Christ after the resurrection. In John chapter 20, eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas is with them. And although the doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, saying, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is fascinating because Thomas so explicitly calls Jesus his God, and Jesus welcomes his belief and says he's going to bless other people who believe the same thing like Thomas. For a Jew who was fiercely monotheistic, for someone to call you God was really a problem unless you were God. Okay. It's one of those clear embracings of his identity as God that Jesus does. We confess the full, not partial deity of each member of the Trinity. Now, when we uh, profess faith in the Trinity... Another thing we are not saying is we're not saying we believe in something that's a contradiction, that's contradictory. Um, it's not like, say, for instance, this, um, this T-shirt here. It says, the following statement is true, and the following statement is, the previous statement is false. Okay. That's a contradiction. You can think about it later. Trust me. It's a contradiction. As Michael Reeves put it, the Trinity is not some piece of inexplicable apparent nonsense like a square circle. And then he adds, or an interesting theologian. That's his words, not, not mine. Now, R.C. Sproul, an interesting theologian, um, cites as an example Dickens' famous line. You may remember this from maybe middle school or high school when you read it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Is that a contradiction? Well, if he means at the same time in the same way, yes. But, of course, Dickens avoids that because he's talking about something that's happening at the same time, but in different ways. In one way, it's the best of times. In another way, it's the worst of times. And so when we say that God is a trinity, if we are saying at the same time in the same way that God is both one and three, that's a contradiction. But we, while we do believe that God is one and three at the same time, we're not saying he's one and three in the same way. He's one God in three persons. That may be a wee bit incomprehensible, even as the creeds say, but it's not a contradiction. We're not asserting two things that are oppositional. Okay? The Trinity is not just a doctrine for people who are bad at math. Okay? We're not saying it's, we're not stating a contradiction when we state it. Perhaps most significantly, um, we're not, when we say we believe in the Trinity, a God who is Trinity, we are not believing something that the Scripture does not teach. Now, if you were to start rummaging out around on the internet to learn about God, I do not recommend it. Do not go to the internet to learn about God. It's a bad place to learn about God. Any bozo who has any thought about God can post it on the internet. But if you did that, 
you would find that many people take those of us who believe in the Trinity to task for this reason, as one blog commentator put it. If this doctrine is necessary, the Trinity, why does the word Trinity or its equivalent never appear anywhere in the Bible? By the way, the absolute worst place to get wise insights about God is in blog comments. Okay? There's no worse place to go than blog comments. So the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and we would admit that. Neither is the word that we studied last week, monotheism, that teaches that God is one. Neither is the word incarnation that teaches that Jesus was God in the flesh. Neither is the word omnipresence that teaches that God is always present everywhere. Neither is omniscience that he knows all things. See, these are theological words that are not in the Bible but are used to describe Bible teaching. Often in response to controversy or to false teaching. Michael Reeves says that one problem people have with the Trinity is that the word never appears in the Bible. Now, that doesn't sound good, he says, and it's given rise to the legend of the Trinity as the invention of some cloister-bound theologians with too much time on their hands. But he says, really, later church theologians would use these terms and words not seen in the Bible, like Trinity. They were not trying to add to God's revelation as himself, as if Scripture were insufficient. They were trying to express the truth of who God is as revealed in Scripture. Particularly, they were trying to articulate Scripture's message in the face of those who were distorting it one way or another. And for each new distortion, a new language of response was needed. So the language is intended to describe Scripture, not add to it. And as we've seen in the following week, and as we'll see as we continue our study in the weeks ahead, the Bible does affirm the teaching of the three great truths that underlie the doctrine of the Trinity. First, God is one. Jesus says it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, in Mark chapter 12. Secondly, the Bible clearly and consistently teaches that God exists in three persons. Now, usually if someone has questions about whether that's true, it's not about God the Father He's obviously a person. Or God the Son, he's obviously a person. The question is, is the Spirit a person or is he some kind of impersonal force, kind of like Star Wars? You know? um, and the Bible presents the Spirit as a person. Listen to Sam Alberry. He says that the Spirit is every bit as much a person as the Father and the Son in Scripture. In the Bible, we see the Spirit's work described in personal terms. He persuades, he prays, he testifies, he cries out, he creates, he judges, he leads, he has a mind, he can be blasphemed and he can be grieved. The Holy Spirit, he says, is not just raw divine power that sloshes around inside of us. He is a person who indwells us and to whom we can relate. Now, some have noted that in the Greek language... The word for spirit is neither male nor female, it's neuter, which makes it kind of like an it, like a chair or a rock. But the funny thing is that even though that's true, that spirit is neuter, the New Testament, especially Jesus, they don't call the spirit an it, they call him a he, contrary to Greek language. For instance, in John 16, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what's mine and declare it to you. It sounds, it sounds like a person when you read it, doesn't it? So we believe that the Bible teaches that all three of the persons of the Trinity are persons. And that those three persons are each fully God. And again, often this question is raised about Jesus. Is Jesus God or is he a created being just like us in a sense? Listen to this one short statement from Paul. And tell me what you think or think about what you think. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Sound like God? Sounds like God to me. You know why? Because Paul wanted it to sound like God, okay? He's teaching us that Jesus is God in bodily form. Think about this, too. If these three were not fully God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, think about the Great Commission we studied just a couple weeks ago in Matthew. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How would it sound if it said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the angel Gabriel. That, 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 is, it wouldn't, that wouldn't make any sense at all. Or if it said, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Apostle Paul. You, the, no! You don't baptize people into the name of Gabriel or Paul into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit because the three are God. See, the best explanation of what the Bible teaches about God is that He is a trinity. He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we believe. And so let me invite you, let's just recite together what we believe from our doctrinal statement I read to you earlier. Let's just confess it together. Ready? We believe that the Godhead exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that these three are one God and are worthy of precisely the same confidence, obedience, and worship. That's what we believe. That's what we believe. What do we mean when we confess that? When we confess that God is not just one, but He's one God in three persons. Listen closely. This is back to the ice cream ingredients, but I want you to listen closely to what Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology. He says, if each person is fully God in the Trinity and has all of God's being, then we should also not think that the personal distinctions are any kind of additional attributes added on to the being of God. Rather, each person of the Trinity has all the attributes of God and no one person has any attributes that are not possessed by the others. On the other hand, he says, we must say that the persons are real, that they are not just different ways of looking at the one being of God. The only way, he says, it seems possible to do this is to say that the distinction between the three persons is not a difference of being of what, but a difference of relationship of who. 
He says, this is something far removed from our human experience where every different person is a different being as well. Somehow God's being is so much greater than ours that within his one undivided being, there can be an unfolding into interpersonal relationships so that there can be three distinct persons. He says several things that are really important there. Let me underscore a couple of them. One, God is not like us. Okay? He's not like us. He's different than we are. And so all our human analogies are going to have gaps. They're going to break down at some point in time. He says the distinction between the persons of the Trinity is not their what. It's not their essence. They're all three God. It's their who, their personage, and the way they relate to one another. Now, as we've seen, there are lots of analogies that have been put forward to try to help us. You know, a man can be a father, son, and a brother. And someone actually proposed that God is like an egg who is a shell, white, and yolk, to which we would say, come on, Patrick. You know, we can do better than that. Perhaps the most helpful way to think about it that I've run across was put forward by Millard Erickson, and he suggests that we propose thinking of the Trinity as a society or a community of persons. He says, Love is the binding relationship within the Godhead that unites each of the persons with each of the others. So in 1 John 4 where it says God is love, it's not a definition of God or a statement of one of His attributes among others. He says it's a very basic characterization of God. Love is such a powerful dimension of God's nature that it binds three persons so close together they're actually one. Tim Keller says... The Trinity means that God is, in essence, relational. Three persons in dynamic orbit about each other, a dance of love, delight, and adoration. Now, I was helped when I, when I read what Michael Reeves said about this. He said, the, perhaps the way to appreciate this best is to ask, what was God doing before creation? And I know, walking in here this morning, that's what you were wondering. What was God doing before he made the world? before anything else existed. And uh, Michael Reeves says, that's an easy question. That's a really easy question because Jesus tells us the answer. In John 17, verse 24, this is really interesting. Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because... You loved me before the foundation of the world. So what was God doing before the foundation of the world? He was loving his son forever and always. This God is a loving father and a beloved son whose love is born to us by the Trinity. Listen, John, or by the Spirit, John says it, Again, in verse 35 of chapter 3, the Father loves the Son. In chapter 5, verse 20, the Father loves the Son. And it's the other way around, too. In chapter 14, he says, Jesus says, I do as the Father's commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. There's this mutuality of relationship in God that's always been. Before God made anything else, the Father was loving the Son. And the Son was loving the Father. 
And the Spirit's role now is to bear that love to us um, as His people. Um, Here in Romans chapter 5, it says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God is a Father, always a Father who loves us, always a Son who is the Beloved, and always the Spirit who bears that love. It's like it overflows from the Trinity into us. God's creation is an act of His love. So the Bible presents God to us as a Trinity, one God in three persons, bound together in eternally loving relationships. What difference should that make? If that's what the Trinity is, what difference should it make? And we've hinted at it already. Jesus tells us that the mark of a disciple of His, if you're a follower of Jesus, the mark is that we love one another. In John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, and you also, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the way we love each other, that's the mark of a Christian. That marks us as a disciple of Jesus. Now John tells us that we are enabled to love like this because God loved us. We love because He first loved us. And what we've been seeing is that God loves us because God is love in His triune being forever and always, past, present, and future. God is always loving. He is never selfish. He has always been a loving, giving, caring being. The Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father, and the Spirit is the one who bears that love now to us. This is the very heart of who God is. Think about it. If God was solitary, for instance, like Allah in Islam, could He really be loving? Before He created anything, was He loving? Sam Albury writes about this. He says, God is Trinity. He is community. He has always been so. There was never a time when the Trinity was not in relationship, and the relationships of the Trinity have always been perfect. God has always possessed the traits that make for the very best relationship, love and faithfulness and such. This is significant because these qualities cannot exist except in relationship. So love exists only when there's more than one person. If God were only a singularity, a solitary person existing alone for eternity, then love is not something he could have experienced or exhibited before creation. Love would not be part of his eternal nature, just something he started making a stab at once he created beings to love. But because God is triune, we can say that love has existed with God, within God for all eternity. It's part of his unchanging nature. C.S. Lewis takes a stab at this as well. He says, before going on, notice the practical importance of this. All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. God has always been love because He has always been 
Trinity. The reason God, we can say our God is love, not just that he loves, he might love, he could love, but he is love is because he has always been in loving relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are loved because God is in loving Trinity. And we then are to live and love in community because that's what our God is like. We are his body representing him to the world. Bruce Ware says, it's not enough for us just to exist together alongside but independent of others. He says, it's kind of, you kind of think about how guys live in a dorm. You know, they live close to each other, proximity, but not really in community. He says, um, God intends that there is to be a created community of persons, the church, in which there is an interconnection and interdependence so that what one does affects another. What one needs can be supplied by another. And what one seeks to accomplish may be assisted by another. This is true of the Trinity. It must be true of us. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Why is that? Because God is like that. We are to be like that. Because God is love, we are to love. This is why the Trinity matters. Because the triune God is loving community. And that's to mark us as the same. Trinity matters because it shapes and is involved in the way we pray. Whenever we pray, the Trinity is involved. C.S. Lewis says, an ordinary simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He is trying to get into touch with God. But if he's a Christian, he knows what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God. The Christ is standing right beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening, he says. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he's being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three-personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. Every time you pray, the Trinity's involved. Every time you pray, and you never Pray to a generic, distant, impersonal God. The Bible will speak of God with that language, call Him God. In the Old Testament, that often uh, represents God the Father. It can represent the totality of the Godhead, but God often represents God the Father. And we are taught by Jesus to pray to whom? To our Heavenly Father. Every time you pray, every prayer you ever pray is never to some distant, uncaring God. Never. It is always a father who loves you so much that he would sacrifice his son for you. Every prayer is prayed to that God, the triune God, who is father, who loves the son and sends the spirit in love for us. The son has taught us to pray to the Father, and the Spirit intercedes for us, according to Paul. Prayer is the Trinity in action. And whenever we pray, we pray to our loving Heavenly Father. No other God, no lesser God, no uncaring, distant God, never. 
Stuart Townend put it this way in his song lyric, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. That's who we pray to. Every time we pray, that's the God we pray to, a loving Heavenly Father. John, in 1 John 3, wrote it this way, and I love this rendering of it. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. Every time we pray, we pray to a Father who has lavished His love on us by making us His children. The love of the Father is intended to be this memorable, shaping thing. Every time you pray, you pray to a father who has already lavished love on you by choosing you to be his child. And he has always been and will always be that loving father to you. The Trinity matters. It matters because that's how mercy comes to us. Salvation comes to us by the work of the Trinity. In Ephesians chapter 1, it starts this way with the Father. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, the Father predestined us for adoptions as sons. So, salvation starts with the work of the Father. If you move on to the next section, Ephesians 1, we see that it was in the Son that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon us. So the Son, by the, by the death of the Son, His blood shed for us, salvation comes to us. And it's not just the Father and Son, but if you look at the next couple verses in Ephesians 1, the Spirit is involved. It says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is a seal, a guarantee, a protector of the salvation that was decreed by the Father and bought by the Son. The Spirit now protects it. And our very life as Christians, our salvation comes to us from the Trinity. The Trinity matters. The Trinity is who we worship. Okay? We worship the triune God. There is no other God that we would worship. No other God that's this cool. What God is like this? Okay? There's no other God like this. No other God, no other deity has been proposed that's like our God. That's why Karl Barth says, the triunity of God is the secret of his beauty. We worship the Trinity because he's so beautiful. This community of love that has eternally existed. Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul closes out 2 Corinthians, his letter, with this Trinitarian kind of doxological, worshipful blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
we end every one of our corporate prayer gatherings. And we started this worship service with the lyrics to this ancient doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We're about to close this worship service with the lyrics of this great hymn written on Trinity Sunday with an intentional threefold repetition of the word of holy at the beginning. Holy, holy, holy. Father, Son, Spirit. Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, holy, holy. Merciful and mighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. This is the God we worship. This is the God we love and delight in and represent to the world by the love we have in our marriages, the love we have for our children, the love we have in our small groups here in this community at North Wake, the love we have for believers that we know outside of this fellowship. That love represents to the world a God who is Trinity, a community of three persons eternally loving and loving us. We'd like to close our service today with a confession of our belief in the Trinity. So if you'll stand, we're going to confess our faith in the Trinity. The congregation will recite the opening and closing lines to this little confession that comes from the Athanasian Creed, and our readers will lead us through the rest of it. It's a profound and precise expression that we worship God who is one God in three persons. And then we'll close and worship the Trinity in song. Let's worship. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not as also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated, and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is Almighty, the Son Almighty, and the Holy Spirit Almighty. And yet they are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord. And yet they are not three lords, but one. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made, not created, but begotten. 
The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. And in this trinity, none is afore or after another. None is greater or less than one another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity and trinity and the trinity and unity is to be worshipped. <laughs> 